Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. We got an amazing show for you today. We're trying something very new. We are going to do a roundtable today with three people in the alternative asset space. As you know, that exploded in 2020 with people being really interested in cryptocurrency, real estate, startups, equity, crowdfunding, uh, art, maybe NFTs, baseball cards, all of these alternative assets have exploded. And I thought we have a number of people in our orbit who are experts on this. What if we put them all together in a round table, not dissimilar to what I did with the all in podcast with my friends uh, who I play poker with. Now, these aren't my besties. These are people I know from the industry, including Rally Rhodes, Chris Bruno. Now, Rally Road, as you know, has been on the program before. And uh, Mark Suster, their investor, has been on the program. Very cool where you can buy fractional ownership in a Lamborghini or a Corvette or something, some famous car. And they've done other assets as well. Masterworks, Scott Lynn is on the program. He is now one of the largest art buyers in the world because he buys a Picasso or a Monet uh, or a Basquiat or a Warhol. And then he lets you buy in uh, and buy shares of that artwork. And then we have Fundrise's Ben Miller on. And they've been doing massive amounts of real estate investing. and. The three of them are extremely smart and are at the forefront of this. And it's an amazing discussion. But before we get into that discussion, I wanted to kick off with a new story. And we've been waiting for what would cause the next bubble uh, or this bubble to burst. In other words, what would be the next dot-com bubble uh, or the real estate and the Great Recession and the, and the real estate collapse of 2008? We all believe this happens every seven to 15 years, we get one of these. And at least in our lifetime, I've lived through three of them, three major ones, I should say. And it feels very bubbly right now. A lot of assets feel inflated. And in fact, we're doing an asset roundtable here. And some of those assets feel inflated. There is um, something that everybody in the cryptocurrency community has been talking about for many years. And it seems to be bubbling up again. And sometimes when I feel this, I decide to go all in on it. And I did this with Nikola, uh, the uh, EV company that has lost a massive amount of value that felt like a scam. And I had the founder of that company on the podcast. And y'all were like, wow, Jake, how great interview. You kind of put all this rope out there. And this guy just kept wrapping it around his neck. And then we had uh, John Carreyrou on the program after his first story about Theranos. And that story created a bunch of interest, uh, or him being his appearance on the podcast, he told us later when he came on after the book Bad Blood came out, he told us that he had more sources come forward after they saw his interview with me. Uh, of course, before that, we saw Bernie Madoff. So I've watched different scams in our industry, and I've seen them unfold. And I'm starting to get that spidey sense with Tether. And the reason I'm getting this is because there's been a lot of great reporting on this stable coin. So it's incredibly complex. We're not going to be able to cover this in one episode. So I'm announcing today a This Week in Startups investigation. That will be a crowdsource investigation. We're going to have a number of guests on the program. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. I should have probably done this. Theranos, which I knew was a scam. It was just obvious to everybody that this was like, some sort of scam. So we're starting today. And we'll cover tether every week on the pod until we figure out if this is a scam. Or this is not a scam. Scam, not a scam. Tether is going to be our focus. And I'm going to need your help as the audience to start researching this, start finding information. And we're going to see if this is the next Bernie Madoff, 
if this is the next Elizabeth Holmes, or if this is reality. So today, we're just going to explain what it is. And basically what people what has people concerned? What are the red flags? And as I said, tether super, super, super complex. All right, let's do the work. Let's get into it. This week in startups is brought to you by LinkedIn jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash twist. Linode is the leading independent public cloud provider. Create an account and receive a $100 credit at linode.com slash twist. And Dell's XPS products were built with entrepreneurs in mind. With increased mobility and longer-lasting battery life, you can stay productive on the go. Sign up for a free IT consultation and a 5% off coupon at launch.co slash Dell. Tether claims to be a stablecoin. A stablecoin is a virtual currency aligned with another asset. In this case, the US dollar. And Tether claims to have a one-to-one ratio. Every Tether equals a one US dollar. That's the claim. And... Tether currently has the third highest market cap in all of crypto at $63 billion. Bitcoin is number one, obviously, at $750 billion, and Ethereum number two at $300 billion. Uh, Phil Potter, one of Tether's founders, owners, called Tether PayPal for the blockchain in an interview uh, with what Bitcoin did in 2019. Tether's virtual coins are supposed to represent actual money and that you can redeem them at any time. And the idea is that stable coins would help build liquidity into crypto exchanges. What's a crypto exchange? That's a website where you can buy and trade cryptocurrencies like Coinbase. But there are many, many more Coinbases in the world. And some of them are regulated in a very deep considered up and up fashion. And some of them are the Wild West, basically, no different than, you know, Russian BitTorrent sites, or, you know, unknown gambling sites on the web. So on the web, you could have very uh, well-known e-commerce stores like Amazon, and then you could have really fugazi ones that are selling, uh, you know, counterfeit product. You could have the dark web, and you could have the light web. You could have, you know, Bank of America in the same place. You have some of these crazy uh, crypto exchanges. And so, simply put, if a crypto exchange cannot work with a bank, and many of these fugazi, shady, underground crypto exchanges, which can be built with off the shelf software, you can buy white label software from what I understand, to just turn on your own exchange, then you can pick your own rules. And you could have no office and you could do this with a small number of people. In fact, one of the claims is that tether only has 13 people. So if you were one of those exchanges, and you don't have access to bank accounts, you can accept tether because you know, every tether is going to be $1 it is pinned, and it doesn't change. Now Bitcoin, it changes radically, you could have bought at 63. And then it went back down to 31. Now it's up to 40. And it's going to go all over the place. And that's a feature not a bug, right? People are buying Bitcoin specifically, because they want to see it appreciate and they want to take that risk stable coins, the opposite. So you have the Fugazi exchanges in the world that are doing money laundering, ransom, dark pools of capital are trading with tether because they're stable coins, and they don't have access to real banks, they don't want to do things like know your customer KYC. And of course, all this pumping and leverage, that's all done by the Fugazi crazy exchanges. If you want to buy 
the what they call um, alternative coins. Before those alternative coins get onto a Coinbase, which has a process for putting them on, which we talked about in the XRP uh, episode where XRP was uh, supposedly the company Ripple was trying to pay off exchanges to list them, including Coinbase and kind of trying to give them millions of dollars allegedly in the SEC complaint to get them to put it on the exchange. That's how valuable it is being on a real exchange. And the Ripple episode, by the way, is 1156. So that's where these tethers come in. All these underground casinos exchanges are using tether. So people buy tether and then they make their trades. So currently there are over 60 billion tethers in circulation according to you know our research on the web and this is a very opaque space and they should have 60 billion in usd to back it up and that is according to tether at the start of 2020 there were only 4.8 billion tethers in circulation and then from may 2020 to late may 2021 tether's year-on-year growth was 581 percent from 8.8 billion to 60 billion eclipsing that of all the rival stable coins combined according to market intelligence from Mondo Vision, uh, whatever that is. Tether's daily trading volume exceeded 195 billion in late May according to CoinGecko. And all of this led to the New York Attorney General saying, what is going on here? And they started investigating in April 2019, the New York Attorney General's office sued iFinex, I-F-I-N-E-X, the parent company of Bitfinex and Tether, which people didn't know were the same company, they uh, sued them in April 2019 for covering their losses. So from 2014 to 2018, Bitfinex allegedly placed over 1 billion with crypto capital, because it was unable to find a reputable bank to work with crypto capital was a Panama based fiat banking platform that allowed users to deposit and withdraw funds to fund cryptocurrencies. If this sounds familiar, this is a lot of what happened in poker, there were all these pop up exchanges and ways to get money into bank accounts. Crypto capital was uh, then either lost, stole, or uh, fled with 850 million of Bitfinex's money. This led the New York Attorney General to sue iFinex, the parent company of Bitfinex and, to, or, and Tether, in April 2019. And they basically alleged that iFinex had been commingling, basically blending client and corporate funds between Bitfinex and Tether to cover up the missing 850. This is exactly what happened with Full Tail Poker, uh, according to different lawsuits. Um, that they were commingling the customer accounts with the corporate account. So in other words, they were allegedly dipping into tether reserves to keep the crypto exchange Bitfinex solvent without alerting investors to the issues. This is classic, classic fraud um, signaling. A lot of times you'll have people who manage other people's money, and they are then gambling or, you know, buying stocks or doing other kind of behaviors with their clients accounts, which they're not supposed to touch. So Bitfinex and Tether recklessly, uh, this is the quote, Bitfinex and Tether recklessly and unlawfully covered up massive financial losses to keep their scheme going and protect their bottom lines, said New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James in February, Tether's claims that it's a virtual currency was fully that was fully backed by US dollars at all times was a lie, said New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James in February. So uh, Bitfinex and Tether group said they admit no do wrongdoing. And uh, they settled this claim and agreed to not do business in New York. So this is the red flag of red flags, you already have one major jurisdiction, not allowing them uh, to participate in May 2021. Tether provided a breakdown and part of that settlement was also to um, produce some transparency, which the transparency does not feel very transparent. And that's what's causing the latest round of is this actually a scam? Is this some sort of Ponzi scheme? Is there something Fugazi going on here? 
And in because if you're sur- if tethers are used for nefarious uses in part, like these crazy exchanges that can't get banked, that means tether is kind of like poker chips from a casino that has loose ethics or morals and they're being used, you know, to buy and trade and other services and or, uh, you know, uh, items. So there's something weird going on here. These quarterly reports were a term of their penalty with the New York Attorney General. So it's super unclear um, to people what's going on in these reports. And that's what's causing the latest uh, brouhaha, if you will. Dell for Entrepreneurs is here to help you with all your hardware and software needs. Here are some of the exclusive benefits for Dell for Entrepreneurs members. Entrepreneurs get free expedited delivery, exclusive offers, and up to 6% back on rewards. You can finance your IT project with Dell Financial Services. How cool is that? Extend your runway by financing all of your equipment. You'll have a dedicated startup IT advisor to help you with any and all technical questions. And Dell has an incredible product line. You know that. Dell's line of XPS laptops and tablets were engineered with entrepreneurs in mind and they'll increase your productivity and were built for mobility. Now you can stay unplugged for longer because they have these incredibly long lasting batteries. Of course, you know, Dell is the world's number one monitor company. So you can pair that beautiful XPS machine with the perfect monitor to realize your vision. Dell's monitors elevate your creative vision with 4K, 8K, HDR, and my favorite, the curved monitors. They're just gorgeous. We just got a 227-inch setup for me with these ultra-sharp vertical monitors. They were actually delivered today. I am stoked. You know I love my Dell monitors. I talk about it all the time. So here's your call to action. The old CTA members of Dell for Entrepreneurs receive an additional 5% off selected Dell products, including that awesome xps line i keep talking about and they'll help you with any it project you may have go to launch.co slash down launch.co slash d-e-l-l and sign up for a free it consultation and that five percent off coupon okay let's get back to this amazing episode so in may 2021 tether provided a breakdown of their reserves uh from march of 2021 which included just under 30 billion or 50 percent of reserves in what's called commercial paper Now, commercial paper is a very another opaque pool of capital. So now we've got like all these different weird opaque pools of capital. We have a settlement with the New York Attorney General and uh, commercial paper are basically short dated investments similar to cash. Uh, So this would make Tether with 30 billion in this commercial paper, the seventh largest holder of short term debt in the world. Let's let that sink in. So Tether is suddenly the seventh largest, this is according to the Financial Times, which has now got their teeth into this. Um, And another 18% is held in fiduciary deposits and more than 12% is in secured loans, and nearly 10% is in corporate bonds funds and precious metals. Cash made up only 2.9%, according to the company's disclosures. JP Morgan analysts said that Tether's large commercial paper holdings may suggest they're struggling to find a bank willing to take its cash as a deposit due to reputational risk concerns so nobody knows what's going on here and then in the commercial space people don't in the commercial paper space the financial times stories was saying hey nobody knows who these people are nobody sees them and that's kind of weird too and this relates to bernie madoff where you had years years of people shedding a spotlight on bernie madoff and it took maybe seven eight years for the bernie madoff fraud to unravel and one of the reasons it unravels is people are saying he's getting all of these like really consistent one to two percent returns a month 
and it was too good to be true. And nobody sees any trades. So if he's got this much money, and it's the largest hedge fund, and or one of the largest, where are all the trades? And now we're having a similar moment here. Now, again, we don't know. That's why we're calling this a This Week in Startups investigation. So their alleged crypto market manipulation has been covered for years, including Financial Times, CNBC, Coindesk, um, and individual citizen journalists like Bitfinext, which is a Twitter user, and Amy Castor, which we'll probably have them on the podcast soon, maybe do a little in-depth with some of the people who are obsessing over this. And typically, whistleblowers are weird people. Uh, there were weird people like, John Carreyrou, who just fought and fought, or, you know, I, I don't want to say weird, like as in not uh, sincere in any way, but they're unique individuals who when they see a fraud want to just dig in, dig in, dig in. And, and we'll get into that part of this archetype, because there is a pattern here with scams. And that's a big part of what this investigation will be about for us here on This Week in Startups. I, I did a tweet about the issue uh, and about Bernie Madoff specifically. And I basically quoted from the Wikipedia page in 2000, 2001 and 2005, Markopoulos alerted the SEC of his views, but each time the SEC ignored him or gave his evidence only a cursory investigation, Madoff was finally revealed to be a fraud in December of 2008, when the market collapsed and people tried to withdraw their money and couldn't. So is this going to be another pattern where Tether uh, hits some sort of moment where everybody wants to redeem, let's say there was a really massive uh, collapse in, you know, uh, the stock market, and then it had a ripple effect to the crypto market or vice versa, the crypto market went down, it, who knows any block swan event creates a contagion. And then there's a run on tether. Could that be the moment we find out tether is a total fraud scam or shady in some way? We know it's shady already. But is it a fraud? And is it a black swan is the question we're going to try to answer here. I need your help with that, obviously. So you can uh, just add TWI startups and at Jason on Twitter as part of this investigation and use the hashtag tether investigation. We'll just make that the official uh, hashtag and, and we'll all just talk about this because if it is isn't a fraud, we should know. But I also tweeted about the fraud playbook. And in the case of a fraud, whether it's Madoff or it's Theranos, there's a classic playbook, attack the critics obscure any inquiry and claim you're being persecuted. So uh, we see a lot of the tether army attacking critics, we see a lot of uh, obscurification of the inquiries going on. Um, and I'm not sure if we've seen evidence of, you know, the claims you're being persecuted, like Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, and even uh, the founder of Nicola, Trevor Milton was our uh, was our guest. And, uh, you know, he, he was claiming he was, you know, like Jesus Christ being <laughs> uh, persecuted by people unfairly. So uh, in June 2018, Tether hired a law firm, not an accounting one, called Freech, Sporkin, and Sullivan, which attested they had $2.5 billion in reserves to cover all the outside tethers, but this was not off audited. And the bottom line is an audit cannot be obtained, uh, Stuart Hogner said, Tether's general counsel. The big four firms are anathema to that level of risk. We've gone where we think is the next best thing. In March 2021, Tether released a report done by Moore Kamen an accounting firm from the Cayman Islands? Okay, <laughs> no red flags there. <laughs> Started stating that Tether had 35 billion in assets backing up 35 billion in Tethers. And this was not a full audit either. It didn't say what the assets were that covered this. Different folks on Twitter have already um, come back to me. There's a lot of theories here. We don't know which theory is true. We don't know what reality is. So this is a process. But J. 
Jacob King said, uh, how the scam works, tethers can be printed, can print infinite amounts of worthless USDT. They can then inject this into Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and others to cause prices to pump. Notice how during the months they stop printing tether, the market moves sideways or drops significantly. And this is, you know, and he put a chart there where it shows when tethers are printed, you have this big spike. Now, I've heard a bunch of different theories here that when there's a dip, the tether folks want to buy and that causes the market to go up because they're buying, right? Um, and so there's demand or that when it dips, they're doing this to pump the, you know, to the value of Bitcoin, Ethereum and other things. And so uh, this is going to be uh, part of the investigation. It was originally when you look at the background, sometimes that tells you everything you need to know that this is not rocket science. Tether was originally called RealCoin. It was started around 2012 and launched in 2014 by Brock Pierce, who I know, who is an eccentric <laughs> individual. Uh, I would call us friendly. Uh, we've known each other for 20 years, but he has a bunch of strange things in his past. I'll leave it at that. Um, and shortly after the launch, RealCoin rebranded as Tether and partnered with the crypto exchange Bitfinex. And to understand Tether, you need to understand the Bitfinex relationship. Bitfinex and Tether are both owned by a parent company called Ifinex. Okay, now this is, you know, usually when you, there's a shell game going on, uh, that's another red flag. Might not be, but the red flags are piling up here. And that is run by three characters that I think the consensus is that they are shady at best is kind of the vibe I'm getting from Twitter. I'm not sure if that's how I feel. I've never met them, but um, they've all been MIA for about two years. And this reminds me of Elizabeth Holmes just being unwilling to show the technology. The CEO, JL Vanderveld, um, is a very secretive person. No interviews, no public appearances. The chief strategy officer, Phil Potter, uh, he worked at Morgan Stanley in the 90s, lost his job about bragging about his lifestyle, uh, according to this New York uh, to a New York Times reporter. And the CFO, Giancaro Devazini, um, he was caught pirating and selling Microsoft software in Italy uh, in 1996. Uh, and it wasn't like um, a small amount of pirating. He, there were over 25 counterfeit disks uh, that were seized. And so it's a super complex org from the New York Attorney General. When you see these super complex organizations, again, a red flag. Uh, but the chart shows that Ifinex, Tether, and Bitfinex all have some group of shareholders in common. And uh, Bitfinex itself has been hacked at least three times and in 2016 claimed uh, they were the victim of the second largest hack in the Bitcoin, in Bitcoin history. So uh, at the time, Bitcoin was at $580 and the stolen Bitcoins were at $70 million, um, And though that would make them worth almost $5 billion today. Bitfinex never reveals the full details of that breach. And they were unable to absorb the losses of the hack and announces all the customers will lose 36% of their assets to cover the losses across the board. In return, customers receive an IOU in the form of BFX tokens valued at $1 each. According to the New York Times, Nathaniel Popper, Coinbase got a better deal after threatening to sue uh, Bitfinex. So it's all super complicated. We're going to need your help to unravel this. It's going to take time, just like, you know, the Elizabeth Holmes, Nicola Saga, Theranos, all of these things. Enron, they took years to sort themselves out, sometimes decades. Who knows if this is a fraud or not? Who knows if this is a black swan or not? But let's try to figure it out together. Use the hashtag tether investigation and make sure you at mention TWI startups or at Jason. Let's do a little investigation here, make it a public investigation, and we'll open source this. If Coffeezilla uh, told me he's reporting on this in a recent episode, 
uh, or he's going to report on this. A lot of people, Financial Times is obviously on it. A lot of people are talking about it. Let's just try to be a center of excellence to figure this out. And let's hope it's not a fraud or that if there are misbehaviors here, that it doesn't result in a contagion and a black swan like event. Okay, on to the episode. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever, don't I know it? And because they're so focused on managing and growing their business, they can't always spend time on one of the most critical functions, some might argue the most critical function at any company, recruiting. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. I can tell you I have had a tremendous experience finding amazing talent on LinkedIn because they put the jobs you're trying to fill in front of the right people, both active searchers and passive searchers. I have landed some amazing talent who weren't actively looking for a job, but LinkedIn put something in front of them that got them on the hook. And then they said, you know what, maybe I would consider switching jobs and doing something more exciting like working for JCal. <laughs> and that has been amazing for me. So why have we had this amazing experience on LinkedIn? Well, 740 million professionals all over the world, they have the biggest global footprint and finding amazing people around the world is a massive competitive advantage. They have incredibly simple tools. They filter and prioritize all the top candidates to set them up for interviews and you're just gonna get qualified, motivated, skilled people. So they're gonna give you a free job posting. I kid you not, your first job posting is free if you go to linkedin.com slash twist. LinkedIn.com, it's already in your browser history, slash TWIST. You need to get back to work. You need talent. You're only as good as your people. And this is where you find the great people on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. I wanted to try something new because I like to do innovative stuff on the podcast. And one of the most innovative things going on in the world today is alternative assets. What are alternative assets? Well, they're assets that maybe aren't traditional like the stock market, bonds, and uh, the home you live in. When people talk about your assets and asset classes, they're typically talking about those three things, maybe cash, maybe gold, or some other things in there. But I think even gold might be considered an alternative asset. Well, one of the things we've all learned is that there are classes of investments that are much different than stocks, and stocks might be overheated. There's only 4,000 or so public companies. We have half the number of private companies than we had just, I think, two decades ago. What does that mean for investors looking for a return on their investment? It means they might need to look other places because those assets, like buying Amazon or buying Disney at this point, they might be fully valued, or some might argue overvalued. Also, alternative assets bring with them rewards that uh, may be non-financial. If you like to collect baseball cards, comic books, cars, invest in real estate, uh, art, or startups, you might get an absolute joy out of selecting what car, classic car you're going to buy, or which piece of art you're going to invest in, or what startup founder you're going to get to meet next, or which real estate you're going to get to own a piece of and, and be able to look at it and just enjoy architecture or maybe renovating it or being uh, a landlord, etc. So I thought we'd do an alternative asset roundtable because I run something called the syndicate.com, which allows 8,000 people who are accredited investors to invest in startups with me. And every month I share six deals and we get a ton of joy out of it. But a group of people have been doing something similar. 
And we have this parallel existence, and I've had them all on the podcast. You know, you've seen them before, but we've never had a roundtable. So we're trying something new today, just a little roundtable. And with me today is Chris Bruno. Chris, of course, is the founder and president of Rally Road. He previously ran Spotter uh, from 2013 to 2018. And if you don't know about Rally Road, they sell shares in collectible assets such as cars, trading cards, memorabilia, whiskeys, wines, watches, and more. And you can watch my interview with him on episode 920 a couple of years back. And they do this for any investor, both retail and accredited. Welcome back to the pod, Chris Bruno. Thank you, Jason. Uh, did I, am I accurate in terms of my description of Rally Road? I thought it was fantastic, just as good as it was a few years ago. Perfect. So we understand what we're talking about here. How many offerings have you done on Rally Road? And I think you've been around for three years now or four? We've been live for about three, a little over three years now. We've done uh, upwards of 300 uh, initial offerings at this point across about 15 asset classes. Love it. So 300, three years uh, in 30 months, it means you're doing about 10 a month. Fantastic. It means you're doing two or three a week. Also with me, a really fascinating guy I got to have a drink with when I was in New York, uh, right before the pandemic, Scott Lynn. He is the founder and CEO of Masterworks, which sells shares in blue chip artwork from people like Banksy, Picasso, Warhol, uh, and again, uh, retail and accredited investors. He was on This Week in Startups on episode 2087. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And you're still in your beautiful, is that your loft or your office? <laughs> <laughs> this is my this is my home. I mean, my lord, that looks like something out of like a Brad Easton Ellis novel or something. Look at how gorgeous those windows are. You're downtown, looking uptown. Is that what I'm seeing? Downtown, looking downtown. Oh, downtown. Oh, yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. Well, is that the Woolworth building behind you? I think. Yeah, the Woolworth building. Yeah. Um, now, how many you launched uh, or started selling art? I think it was between two and three years ago. Am I right? On the platform? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when I was last on the podcast, I feel like we'd only done a couple of paintings at that time. I think it was one or two. So how many one have you done maybe, so far? Yeah. yeah, and I think we're I think we're up to 60-something now. 60 these all, paintings. These are all $1 to $20 million paintings. Amazing. Uh, the combined value of those 60 is getting close to a billion dollars, like a, over half a billion? No, no, no. I think it's, I think it's like, uh, I think AUM right now is around 175, you know, this oh, year okay. we buy 400 million in art. Wow. So you're at 175, but you're going at a breakneck speed. If you're going to hit 400 million under management means you're adding 10, 20, $30 million worth of art a month. Yeah. We're, we're at about 30 million a month now. That is extraordinary in terms of collectors. How many collectors in the world are adding 400 million? A year to their collections i mean we you know we don't know in the in the art market there's there's different types of buyers i mean we we think we're the largest buyer but there's you know there's this community of people that buy 100 million dollar paintings who, who you've probably heard of so they, yeah. they may spend more um but we're, we're probably a top buyer at this point remind me to ask you when we get into the round table about that um picasso or maybe picasso of like uh the da vinci one or whatever it is that billion yeah, dollar the, 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 <laughs> yeah. you can, wanna, can tell you're clear, clearly not an art guy <laughs> whatever that the, one uh, was i saw it in person it looked terrible uh it was like muddy the, and what is it what which one was that what painting was that the that? The, the the da vinci uh salvador mundi the salvador yeah and yeah um not a fan saw it in person but somebody paid a billion dollars for it or mbs maybe paid 500 but i want to know all about that um and how that happened and then for the first time on this week in startups ben miller 
who is the co-founder and CEO of Fund Rise, which has been around for a decade doing private real estate investing. Again, both retail and accredited. Retail means uh, you make under 200000 a year, have under a million dollars in net worth in the United States or thereabouts. You can look up the accreditation laws, which are changing, which will be one of the topics we'll discuss today. Ben, welcome to the pod. Hey, hey nice to have me. Uh, it is nice to have you. Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell me uh, how much real estate you bought in the first half of this year in 2021. What was the first six months like? How many offerings do you do? And what's the total value of the assets under management? What did you do this year? Just give people a ballpark. Uh, we're probably buying about $100 million of real estate almost a week. What? Wow. Something like that is yeah. truly significant. Yeah, I think we're the 20th largest real estate investor in the world back to this point. Okay, so something is happening here in terms of the scale of this. Let's start with scale. Just going around the horn here. Uh, we had the pandemic, which meant people were staying home. We had the stock market becoming overvalued. We had stimulus and we had people's appreciation in the stock market, maybe making them look to make other bets. How has the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, impacted everybody's business? I'll start with you, Chris, then go to Scott and then Ben. Chris, how has the pandemic changed things for you, if at all? I mean, it's been a, it's a dramatic change, truthfully. Um, you know, I think one, all, all of the trends that you're talking about are exactly right. So putting a focus on alternatives. Um, I think that uh, younger people becoming more self-directed and being excited about investments that resonate with them on a, on a personal level has become more important. And then I just think attention, right? So there's, uh, you know, there's such a, there was, there was such a lack of other things to do that uh, focusing on a lot of the old hobbies, a lot of the things that people are excited about, a lot of nostalgia, doing things with the family. Um, I think that became a, a learning opportunity as well as one for, uh, you know, deploying capital in different ways. Um, maybe if it's not on experiences, it's on things that, you know, resonate and are feel experiential, but are, uh, you know, net positive in terms of your, you know, your portfolio and your uh, investing sort of, you know, competence. So it put a lot of attention on us. And it's been, uh, it's been, you know, triple digit quarter over quarter growth uh, since sort of the beginning of the pandemic. Wow, so doubling quarter over quarter or more uh, for your business. Are you getting a little sick of the cloud wars? Aren't we all? It's time to cut your cloud bill in half and get amazing customer support and save $100. It's time to grow your business with Linode. No matter what kind of business you're running, whether it's a streaming app, an e-learning platform, or anything using machine learning, you need reliable infrastructure and hosting. And Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. So why use Linode instead of the competition? Well, there's no lock-in. You can change services as you please and price predictability. They don't charge based on bandwidth usage. What an incredible innovation. So you're going to save up to 50% off the other major providers. They've been around for 17 years, almost two decades. So they've been doing this for a while now and you can trust them. We use Linode for hosting This Week in Startups Australia and it is fantastic. We get 24-7 human support with no tiers, no handoffs. And that's why Linode is the leading independent public cloud provider. See if you can cut your cloud bill in half today and save $100 at linode.com slash twist. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash twist l-i-n-o-d-e dot com slash twist go ahead and create account and receive a hundred dollar credit right now are the assets themselves becoming more expensive much more expensive 
let's talk a little bit about inflation there because we have fears of inflation we have money printing going on and is that also hitting the asset classes in other words things that you maybe syndicated uh, to use a word in 2019 did they see massive appreciation by 2021 yeah, a little bit different. We're in a lot of different categories. So different, you know, categories have sort of scaled to different rates. Which um, one the most? Uh, you know, I'd say over, over the last year, uh, sports cards and trading cards, sports collectibles has just been an insane, you know, place of growth. Um, so that really has seen probably the largest uh, sort of uptick over that period of time. Uh, you know, comic books, actually just a, an incredible category, rare books also that goes with it. In the last week, we've exited, I think, uh, four individual comic books off the platform. Um, at, you know, returns that sort of range from, you know, 10% on the low end to 40% on the high end in, you know, carrying times of three to nine months. Uh, so how those do you are make that decision to sell after just three to nine months? Or is that you're saying people partially selling, and it's still staying on the platform? No, no, these are these are full exits off the platform. We we integrate that uh, decision making with the syndicate, you know, you to use your terms. So uh, we poll our entire syndicate and get a taste for how they're feeling at any point in time. And, you know, leverage that information very heavily in our decision to to liquidate an asset. So, um, you know, but that's you still ultimately make the decision and everybody in the syndicates along for the ride. Correct. And they trust you to make the great decision. So if they wanted to stay in it, and you force them to take a 40% profit force them using air quotes here, because they agreed to do this, but to trust your decision making, um, they just have to live with that, they're going to get the 40%. That's uh, right. And you know, not just our decision making, right? We have an incredible advisory board people in that given, you know, in each given vertical. So there's a lot of thought that goes into it, a lot of data that goes into it. Instead of selling out one of those comic books that went up 40%, why not? put those shares up for sale to the rest of the rally road audience, as opposed to clearing them completely. That, that's a that's a lot of what's happening. So our, our secondary market is, is pretty robust at this point in terms of transacting in the securities, good price discovery, etc. Um, I think that's an interesting feature. You know, it's one that's funny that we were talking about last week is, you know, in the case of an exit, perhaps there's a way to uh, keep the people who who want the asset in the asset. Um, and keep the people who don't want the, you know, don't want the who want the liquidation event to, to get that as well. So it's a really cool feature that we're actually kind of whiteboarding as we speak. It's an interesting feature because you as the platform could charge a fee for you, you would get carry on the 20, you would get I'm assuming 20% carry when they sold their shares. We don't charge any carry uh, oh. or any or any management fees on on, on money oh. under management. So, uh, it, so you it just get world. money from when you originate the deal. We get money when we originate the deal. And we also invest in every one of our deals to be aligned with our community. Got so uh, we're happy, you know, to see positive returns when they come across the, the, the interesting thing in the venture business is if I was to sell some shares um, to other syndicate members, so if I had late stage syndicate members, and the early stage ones wanted to sell their position in calm, let's say, I would get the 20% carry on that. And then when the late stage folks sold again, I would get carried twice. So it would be a way to get the twice and I would have earned that because uh, of uh, having set that up. Scott, what are you seeing in terms of appreciation from the 2019 class to 2021? Obviously, it's been bonkers. And then people seem to be understanding art as a class more. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still very early days um, for, for understanding art. I mean, we have the leading research team in the art market to understand returns, correlation, et cetera. Um, we published the first report with City in 2019 on, on correlation between art and other asset classes, you know, concluding it's effectively an, an uncorrelated asset class. Um, but, but most people's understanding is very, very early. If you, 
look at art overall, and, and we specifically focus on what's called contemporary art, which is art created after World War II, that segment has appreciated a 14% a year for the last 25 years. Um, and, and it has a, you know, it has a, a relatively low amount of, uh, of volatility overall. So, you know, it, it pretty much appreciated at that during, um, uh, during last year as well. So we haven't, you know, as a business, we've obviously seen the same thing that I think other platforms have, which is kind of a surging demand from, from retail investors to get to know the asset class, explore the asset class, invest in specific offerings. Um, but, you know, the asset class, at least from our perspective, continues to be, pretty steady and perform pretty, pretty consistently. How do you get paid as a platform? Uh, our management fees are like yours, which is which is a one and a half percent per year management fee and then 20% carry when, when a painting sells. Got it. So if you were to buy this $10 million painting, one and a half percent 150k a year over 10 years 1.5 million. And yep. does it cap out at a certain point? Or is it all, uh, for every year? It doesn't. I mean, the, you know, stating, maybe stating the obvious, but, but art doesn't produce income, right? So the way that we earn that one and a half percent fee is by issuing ourselves equity in the painting. Ah, got it. Um, so we get shares in the painting for our management fee, and then we get 20% of the profit when the painting sells. So if you hold on to it, you would own 10%, then you sell it, you would get 20% of the 90%. If it doubled in value and was a $10 million painting, you would get to 20% of 9 million. You would get that one point uh, eight million, and the and the investors would get the other seven, six point two, or whatever it is, or seven, six seven point, point eight, I think. Seven point two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seven point two. Yeah, uh, been, doing math quickly here, but um, yeah. So that's a, a really great business for you because that one and a half gets you more ownership, and then that keeps you aligned, and you'll make a great decision if you own ten percent of the painting ten years from now. Are you seeing people? um trade shares yet do you allow people to trade shares on the platform yeah we we launched trading markets actually during covid so we now have um i, I think it's still relatively small about 20 percent of our our investors uh with trading accounts so something like mm -hmm. uh, i think 12 or fifteen thousand investors have trading accounts now so oh. we're seeing you know we're seeing good liquidity in the trading market um mm -hmm. slowly slowly growing over time uh we always tell people to think of these still as three to ten year illiquid holds um, but you know, now there is, there is, there's real activity on the secondary market. So people can get out, get out early if they want. Has anybody asked you, Hey, you're going to do 400 million this year. Can I give you $4 million and be 1% of that? I'm thinking like an institutional investor, a family office. Have you had those folks come in and say, listen, we trust your judgment. You pick what 40 pieces you're doing at a million dollars on average each or 20 pieces at 2 million, whatever, or 10 million, whatever, whatever your number is that you're doing. Uh, we just want to have a percentage of what you buy this year or just put 10 million into it. Yeah. So, so we, um, so like I mentioned, we, we have the leading research team in the art market. We've, we've been working with firms like Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, separately Merrill, separately US Trust, HSBC, just a long list of, of private wealth firms as well as institutions to understand the asset class. Mm. Uh, most research teams within these firms have, have no idea how to think about art at this point. Mm. So we, we've been doing that for a couple of years now. And I think a lot of those conversations are, are starting to lead to um, maybe conversations around, around, you know, some sort of uh, white label product to those firms. But I think we're, you know, I think we're still a ways out from institutions in particular, really recognizing art as, is a strategic asset class. Got it. Okay. And then Ben, I assume in the real estate market coming around the horn here, if you were in 2019 commercial real estate at the peak, you got slaughtered because of the pandemic. 
And then if you were in residential, you got absolutely, you know, incredible 30, 40, 50% returns over that two year period. What's it look like in the real estate space? Right. So we were in residential, we have something like 18,000 apartments on our platform across the Sunbelt. Wow. So we, we got ahead of that wave. And we're also now in single family rental. And so um, it's actually the the pandemic whiplash that we're seeing. So we, we did pretty well during the pandemic. There was a lot of um, sort of normal, it was almost normal growth across the portfolio, despite the pandemic in the Sunbelt for residential. And then at the end of it, it just has gone crazy. And you're seeing like, whether it's homes or apartments, rent growth, rent growth, organic rent growth, 10 to double digit. Which, uh, year over year or over the two years? No, I mean, literally like in the last 60 days. Wow. <laughs> well, what, what do we attribute that to? <laughs> Is it because I've read this Wall Street Journal story that a lot of private residences were getting bought by investment firms who were overbidding? Is it that there's just a like, crazy housing shortage? Or is it that rich people are buying two or three homes during this madness? And um, we're, we're seeing inventory shrink even more. What's happening? It seems to be a confluence of factors. So, so um, we we're most focused on rental rental residential. So that can be apartment buildings or can be single family housing that we rent. And um, I think it's a combination of inflation. Real inflation is actually happening everywhere. I mean, we you know we have like thousands of homes we're buying, and there's all a supply chain failure, and there's you can't get a refrigerator in Texas. I mean, just absolute. So prices are 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 up. I think that there are a lot of people who decided to move back to the cities ah. all of a sudden, all of at once. So in Austin, Austin rent growth, 14%, right? In the and last 60 days. Six, 60 days. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, so, yeah it's crazy. So it's, um, so yeah, the, the key, this is like, I think all of us, you have to buy the right stuff. So if you are in, if you're in, if you're in multifamily, if you're in residential in like uh, the high growth places like Austin and Nashville and, and, uh, Dallas, like there's just been, and you just happen to not be in San Francisco and New York, or did you have holdings well, there? An and accident. Then, yeah. No, no, we got out of New York and San Francisco. We have we had housing in San Francisco. We have a we and on Dale City, we had like 150 home development. But um, it was just too expensive. We always just felt we felt like it had gotten crazy, and we just got out and sold everything back in like 16, 17. So mm. I mean, prices matter. Yeah, entry price certainly matters. And this is something we've been talking a lot about with our syndicate. We've seen startups, you know, we invested in Calm, Thumbtack and Uber for $15 million valuations combined. 5 million, 4 million, 5 million, I think. And now we're seeing people with less traction than any of those three startups have asking for 20 and $25 million caps. Now the exits are much larger. But you know, if you look at the entry price, it actually makes more sense for us to wait until they get to product market fit and then pay, you know, 40 million, then pay 25 million when they haven't even launched the product yet, or they're just in beta. So I do think entry price matters. And I think looking at uh, comic books, cards uh, that have appreciated massively, how do you start thinking about this inflation? Is it scary now to you know, Christopher be buying cards or comic books at this time. And, and then how do you deal with that disconnect where you're selling in one case, because you had this massive appreciation, but you still want to build your collections and have offerings? H how do you how do you snipe those? Yeah, and no, I think it's a great question. I mean, we've, um, we've been very data driven about it and very deliberate about it. 
And I think we've also been uh, way ahead of the curve in a few of these different asset classes. In 2017, we were building uh, an inventory of sports collectibles and sports cards. Um, so a full you know, year to two years before it really started to have its run up. We're doing that currently in some new classes that we think are going to be exciting for people and sort of have the next places where attention starts to go. And then I think the other part is, uh, is when you buy quality, um, you know, I think in general across a lot of these different collectible, uh, you know, asset classes, you see these periods of hyper sort of growth. Um, and then, you know, maybe it gets a little bit too far, but the good stuff, uh, is really hard to replicate. And once mm. it gets to a certain level, it doesn't tend to, to fall too far. So when we focus on the high quality assets, we focus on the top of the market. Um, it's less scary because, uh, you know, there's, there's one of few in many of these cases. And those one of few continue to have sort of perpetual, um, interest from multi generations across a lot of different periods of time. And that's held pretty consistently, uh, you know, to date. And, uh, today I asked if anybody wanted to debut something and you were, you actually had something you wanted to announce today. So what a perfect time. Tell us what is the latest vertical you're going to go after and you see an opportunity in. Yeah. And so, I mean, for us, uh, you know, intangible, uh, collectibles is something that I think is getting pretty exciting. And one of the first ones that, uh, that I'm excited about is actually domain names. Oh, um, yes. yeah. So that's a, a, you know, an asset class that, you know, has a lot of history of appreciation. Um, our cash flow producing assets, which I think is really sort of, you know, a particularly fun, super comprehensible and definitely, you know, have some of those emotional sort of returns where, you know, it's really a way to sort of invest behind brands, companies, et cetera. Um, and do so in a way that's uh, correlated with the growth of that sort of category or with the, with the you know, underlying, um, you know, uh, company that owns the URL, uh, very much like the real estate business. And I think that's something uh, that's going to be a lot of fun for us. I love the domain name space. I, I still own Mahalo.com <laughs> and uh, Aday.com, A-D-A-Y.com. Well, if, if you're looking for some liquidity, you know, yeah, we've got maybe. some other things. That's right. You and I are working on another deal. Well, I wanted we to announce that today. we were talking about my, I, I guess that's I can right. say it, right? That I'm Please. considering putting my uh, 16th Roadster ever made, uh, the Tesla 16th Roadster with the new 300 mile battery pack in it on the platform uh, and selling half of it. And then you would take custody of it mainly because... I'm looking at it as a collector, I still want to have upside in it. But I'd love to have another 50% of people have upside in it. I'd love to get it out of my garage and just have you take care of it, not me. Uh, and then do you do the same thing where you get a little bit of a management fee and get shares in the in the product as time goes on? We, we don't we would, uh, you know, we would purchase our shares alongside the community right. in, in the deal. So uh, that's how we would have exposure to it. Um, and you know, we've been doing a really, I, I think, great job uh, monetizing our collection. Um, through the sale of merchandise uh, and other sort of, I would say, like second order collectibles behind the mm. investing. Um, right. And so that's been a great revenue stream. What's that an example of that? Uh, you know, so we did the last, um, the last floor uh, that Kobe played on, right? As a, wow. as a section of the floor. He signed it. Um, it was the last floor he played on. And that was something where uh, we did sort of a miniaturized version of that, where, wow. uh, where investors, as they went through the process, could... Uh, purchase that if they got into the IPO. And so, you know, we sold, I think, uh, you know, three or 400 of those on the back end of it. And that's a great revenue stream that actually first goes towards, um, you know, all the things that, that it costs, you know, the insurance, the maintenance, the storage. Um, right. it offsets all of those costs. And, you know, at some point I'm hopeful. Um, and, and I think we've got a real line towards, uh, driving dividends from that business line for our investors. So. The collection mm -hmm. as a whole starts to become, you know, revenue generating. It, it already is, and then it will become hopefully profitable at some point. 
Amazing. And uh, I think, Scott, you can't talk about specific offerings at Massworks, but you did want to uh, or agreed to tease maybe a little <laughs> bit of categories that you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, uh, I guess, artist markets and how those have performed over the past sure. the past year. So I think the most interesting artist market, uh, from our perspective, has been the Banksy market. So the Banksy market has, has more than doubled uh, over the past year. And and we find his market really, um, really fascinating because, you know, Banksy doesn't have what we consider, we define as, as cultural significance, meaning there aren't really institutions that collect Banksy's work. There isn't an, a, a dealer really? that really represents his market. But yeah, he, he's so, so he's, disproportionately culturally relevant. Correct. Yeah. So it's so interesting. So he's a, he's a pop culture icon, right? But the, the art market. Uh, machinery doesn't doesn't really support him because is that because, because they don't have he doesn't do galleries and he's kind of outside the system and he's an outsider well he's, he's anonymous right like nobody even knows his name so it, it's mm. difficult for the art world to uh to to really support him but you know his is that because of providence uh they don't know that it's actually real or not and that that's a challenge you know it's not it's interesting there's a there's a um uh a gallery i guess called pest control which is which is really uh operated by um by people that, that know him and are affiliated with him to authenticate all of his work. Ah. Um, so there's a good way to authenticate the work, but you know, he, he's just never really been part of part of the art world. Hmm. Um, but nonetheless, we, we've seen a lot of people who are not what we would consider traditional collectors come to the art market and buy Banksy's work uh, in a big way. A lot of them, frankly, today are, are crypto people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've never, you know, never seen that before. Like when, when $10 million paintings sell or $20 million paintings sell, they typically send to t- t- tend to sell to people who are already known entities or known, known collectors. Got it. Um, so we think that's a really interesting market. Yeah. It seems fascinating if you could start rounding up Banksy's and selling those <laughs> or just anybody in that, in that area. And, it would be and amazing. Believe me, people are, people are cutting them off walls at this point. And, you know, it's, well, that's uh, another it's thing crazy. is if you, if you did cut a Banksy off of a wall, and then tried to sell it the person who owned the wall owns the wall so you just stole the wall but who owns the banksy painted on the wall i mean that it would be it would argue that the person who owned the wall would own the banksy then yeah the person who, <laughs> in that example the person who owns the wall owns owns the banksy is uh, that right oh my god how uh, crazy is that <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's crazy right now yeah the Banksy is fascinating. How long has he been operating? And then are there risks with these anonymous artists? Well, so so we would say yes, right? We would say that if that if institutions don't collect artists, if galleries don't represent mm-hmm. artists, they're kind of the market makers in the art world, right? They determine mm-hmm. what's important. They determine what's culturally significant. They they build deep collector bases so people um, you know people can can there's depth in the market, there's liquidity in the market. Um, he doesn't have any of that. And frankly, Banksy also doesn't produce that much work, mm. um, which is also why, you know, it, it, you see things that are you know, cut out of fences or walls selling for, for millions of dollars. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we think well, he's that's an the opportunity. If it, if it is anonymous, if it is hard to understand, that's literally my thesis for investing in startups is. I would I want to invest in a contrarian way when other people don't understand it. And when it has slim chances of success, that means if it does succeed, it would be an extraordinary win. If Banksy is not um, part of the establishment, and he does succeed, the establishment then has to catch up and buy his work. And 
let's face it, this new group of NFT buyers and your platform is the new art market. You're creating, you know, a subculture within the art market, are you not? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're, we're creating a, a, you know, whole new community of people who have never invested in art investing for the first time. Mm. Um, so, you know, if we spend $400 million in art this year, the, the really interesting thing from an art market perspective is that's all new capital going into the art market, mm. um, which is, which is interesting in its, in itself. But, you know, going back to Banksy, when we first looked at his market, our research team, I think had his market, this is maybe a little bit over a year ago at a 13% historical return. You know, fast forward to today, it's it's been over 100%. So we saw signs of momentum, but we had no idea it was going to was going to explode like it did. One of the great things about what you're doing at Masterworks is you could actually tell people this is these are the risk factors. If you're buying a Monet or a Picasso, the, this is how it's done over this period of time. If you're buying, I don't know, uh, a Warhol, here's that shorter period of time. And now if you want to be part of this avant-garde outsider art movement or less uh established well you can take that risk and, and might be more risk more upside it might be more risk more risk and less upside right you can actually define that for people can't you yeah we, we can and, and I'll, I'll use an interesting example so monet is probably the example that i that i like the most so monet's market is a is a top three market in the art market picasso is typically the largest and then monet and warhol are, are typically second or third um so monet's market actually appreciates it around six or seven percent per year at this point um but his 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 volatility or standard deviation of returns is quite low so if you look at his market on a sharp mm. ratio perspective it's about 1.1 1.2 which which is very good um so monet's returns are incredibly predictable over decades which we find we find very very interesting most of our investors are looking for much higher appreciating artists um you know double digit returns but Nonetheless, we, we think this market is interesting just because it's so large and so so predictable. Well, I, I, I talked to you about this before. I don't know if I talked to this about you with you privately when we had drinks when I was in New York at the Beekman Hotel, or if I talked to you about this on the pod. But since you have access to this and people have an appetite, I would be much more interested in you saying we're going to find 20 new artists and buy two pieces of each. We're going to buy 40 pieces at $50,000 each. And I would rather be part of that than any of this so have you thought about doing a mutual fund type approach to new artists and giving us a collection of them yeah so we, we have a fun product coming out uh over the next quarter that, that will do exactly that it's, it's basically an auto diversify product across a number of our our single asset offerings and and you're right there's definitely mm, i want the new ones <laughs> give me <laughs> the new the, mutants the, the highly speculative emerging. Yeah, it's more fun yeah. too, right? We we it it it's very hard for us. I mean, the amount of work that we we spend on selecting paintings is is pretty high. So you know, Got dealing it. with the hundred thousand dollar what's called primary market, it's just it's it's see, but I, that's what I do for a living as a startup. With startups, I tell people, hey, listen, we're putting five hundred to three million dollars. These are very this is a very small amount of money putting to very young startups with a eighty percent chance that it goes to zero. So we, we kind of just tell people that and, and then they can kind of uh, work from that point uh, forward. But okay, I get it. It's easier to just <laughs> say, hey, Warhol <laughs> is Warhol. Um, yeah. Uh, ben, I, I guess, similar question uh, for you about new projects. It, have you thought about any type of new 
assets. I don't know if you had one to de debut today, but um, have you thought about new assets? Uh, there are things like mobile home parks, or uh, I'm on the board of an inv major investor in Blockable, which is creating their own new projects. Have you thought about buying dirt or starting projects? Or do you only have an appetite right now for, you know, established revenue generating, uh, you know, apartments, etc, and homes? And we, we go where the bottleneck is. I mean, that's how you typically make money in real estate is you find where the shortage is. And so the shortage right now is supply of homes. So we have um, like partner with six home builders. And we mm. are way up the supply chain, like three to five years out, financing land, buying land, building homes. So we have like like two thousand five hundred homes in our pipeline under construction. Wow! So we launched. So you do that already, and then how do you offer that as an offering? Yeah, it's it's, it's 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 part of essentially a single family rental strategy we launched just recently. When we had G Goldman Sachs give us a three hundred million dollar credit facility to sort of expand that, that just it just happened. And um, so, like the the capital markets are very inefficient around around this part of the of the market, as he said. Like the institutional player likes uh, things that are known, and and the core asset classes are very expensive. Mm. So the ones that are sort of like office and and core residential in San Francisco, and New York, we're pricing like two thousand dollars a square foot, right? And so, so where's we the upside? Up the right? supply chain. Yeah, I just well, there wasn't right. It turned out there was right. more downsides in retrospect. So, um, so we didn't. So, I mean, if you think about real estate, real estate's about huge macro trends. Mm. And so, it, even though people, what think are of those it huge as, macro uh, trends that you look at? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 going to seem really familiar to you because they're they're actually not that far from technology. Mm. So we you know, remote te remote work, I think, is going to be a huge driver of real estate. Driverless is going to be a huge driver of real estate. If you can live in Raleigh and buy a palatial home for 400 grand and and leave New York, that's happening. Mm -hmm. And so it's driving, it's driving the Sun Belt like, um, because I don't need to get the affordability, but you also get the, you know, the quality of life, the, the weather. So that's a huge one. We just launched and this is like, is new. Which is we, why Nashville, <laughs> Atlanta and some of those places are just booming. Uh, people can basically go to Nashville and or atlanta and live like a king or queen and if you're doing remote work and you got a high-speed connection you're good that's the macro trend to end all macro trends forget about self-driving who knows people have, people don't have to drive my god that's just huge um so does that mean the developers are racing to those areas or do the developers need somebody like you to say hey we have an appetite for you to build in this area what drives it the developers are the sophisticated ones or the money is the sophisticated one the money is usually the follower for mm. for sure I mean, money and the money even the more institutional you get the more the money wants to actually see full life cycle full trades mm. it's sort of like while well, big institutions don't usually go into early stage they want to be in the later stage in, in yeah. tech same thing so um but no the people lead it that's mm. the thing it's not developers follow people there's very right. few developers who sort of go there and say like if they build it they will come there's some have done that You've, and usually they get hosed like what you know canary oh, wharf really? and yeah, the, the the sort of the famous stories that like usually the person who buys it from them after they've hit the skids it makes the money. Ah, got it. So Austin, Nashville, these kind of places, you ha you have this revolving line of credit Goldman gave you. You can work with a developer and say, yeah, let's make a hundred homes or a hundred doors or whatever it is in one of those areas, and then I as an individual could buy into that specific 
location or am I buying into a portfolio? What are you selling to individual investors? Yeah, we're buying, oh, you're, we're, we're selling diversified pool. I mean, we're like, like you, what you just said, you don't know which one to pick. And, you know, and reality is if we, if we make 10, you know, 3x in Austin, but only, you know, one and a half x in Nashville, what you want is a just a, a stable result, a good outcome. So it's, it's about, I mean, it's about making it like stocks, right? Most people aren't stock pickers. Most people just invest into a diversified pool of of tech or of, of the whole S&P 500. If you can do that for real estate, basically, which wasn't really investable before mm. we started Fundrise, then you can get people into the alternative, low cost, simple, and and just easily. So Scott, you had mentioned there's no way to make the money money off the art. And then Christopher, you said there's actually tons of ways to make money off of some of the alternative assets you're working on. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, Scott, could you not take this, you know, Salvador Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci that sold for 450 million? I know there's a bunch of lawsuits or whatever around it. Would that not drive massive amounts of uh, interest and people paying to go to a museum to see it? Uh, And if but, you know, a million people paid $20 a year, you know, over 20 years, it would pay for the cost of the painting, you make $20 million a year. I mean, look, I, you know, personally, I've, I've lent paintings to museums for 15 years. Uh, I know most major museum director. And like one thing I can say is uh, I don't see museums at any point in time in the future paying to um, to rent paintings. It's just not how they think about the world. Um, mm. You know, nonprofits in general are very, very hard to deal with. Um, you know, there may be opportunities to, to kind of rent them to commercial Mm-hmm. uh spaces uh, i guess lobby there's, of a building maybe or yeah, something i mean there, there's been a handful of these startups in the art market that have tried it you know nobody's been successful nobody nobody's really around today so i think there's i think there's limited opportunities but but we tell investors to assume that there's there's not at this point well why wouldn't but you have 400 million dollars in art a year why wouldn't you create the masterworks warehouse on the west side of manhattan or in brooklyn and allow people to come for $25 and have lunch and coffee and go see all these masterworks. Yeah, I mean, in New York, I, it's just, you know, you can go to the Whitney for free, you can go to the Met for free, you can, you know, I, I just think it's a, uh, it's hard to cover operating expense um, with that business huh. model. Really? I, I don't know, man, it seems to me like some, but some city who wanted to have more art in their city would just absolutely pay a ton of money to do this. Uh, what What is uh, your experience being uh, Christopher over at um, Rally Road? H- have you thought about, you know, I don't know how many cars you currently own, but how many cars do you currently own? And at some point, can you make a museum of cars? So we, we own about about 50 or 60 at this point. Got it. Um, and, and they're like, I, you know, I think what Scott said is right, you know, like the business model has to make sense. We've seen the most. Um, we've seen the most traction in sort of digital offerings and these sort of second order collectibles. And you know, I think with the type of investors we have, the type of categories we're in, um, there's a tremendous amount of demand for that, right? So you know, we've got the you know the the PSA 10 uh, Wayne Gretzky rookie card, right? And you know, I think we uh, I think we did our initial offering at around eight hundred thousand dollars. A similar one just sold for three plus million dollars, right? And they're just so far out of reach for the ordinary person that um, having something to go with that investment, I think, you know, really resonates. And, and it's something that um, 
that we've seen uh, people actually building a secondary market for the merchandise that we do alongside uh, you know, some, so you of, some of these a, offerings. Could you make a t-shirt of that card and put Similar, the round, round yeah, logo I, on it? Or do you not have the right to do that? Because that was one of the questions I had about NFTs. People said you own this NFT from people for whatever, 50, 60 million bucks, but you can't monetize can't it monetize in it, any right? way. Yeah. That seems no, crazy to me. What about baseball cards and, you know, cars and stuff like that? If you own that asset, you could charge people to come see it. Can you make a, can you, could you make a t-shirt or a mug out of it? We, we, we don't charge people to come see it. We actually do operate, um, well, pre-COVID and we'll be reopening soon, a, a retail experience here in Soho that we, we get people to come in. We do exhibits and openings around each of the assets, but it's more about community than it is about monetizing that sort of, uh, you know, that traffic in any way. Um, and, you know, in terms of the uh, monetizing the underlying assets, things like cards are a little bit more challenging because there is, uh, you know, somebody with rights to those images. Um, so you somebody know, who took the photo owns the correct. right, you don't own the right. Correct. So that a derivative work would a not derivative be work would be a problem. But we do we do uh, things that that are original works of our own that are emblematic of it, and they are uh, you know very highly uh, valued by the community. So um, I think that's something that that's just been a great part to build. Um, you know the shareability of the platform, something that's great about letting people feel um, you know a bit of that emotional return that you were talking about earlier that goes along with the financial return. Um, and I think that's a lot about what collecting is about. And I think it's a lot about why we built this platform was to, you know, to open up those experiences to just such a broader group of people. So this is where I think domain names will be great for you because there is a business in leasing domain names and lease to yes. buy. So if you buy a domain name for a million bucks, you could lease it to somebody for 10k a month with them having the right to buy it anytime in the next whatever four years for 1.5 million. And you you basically get two swings at the bat in order to to make money uh, from it. I guess that's sort of what you're thinking. Yeah, it's exactly exactly right. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. Uh, fascinating. And so uh, when the market corrects, uh, we could see people wanting to sell their shares or, or assets deflate, maybe. Um, how are we preparing people for that? Uh, ben, do you do any kind of, you know, sort of education for people of like how to look at the, you know, the ups and downs of real estate and and, and how prepared are they uh, for a pullback i mean the the growth in sort of the monetary base right the quantitative easing they're doing i don't think they're going to take that money away out of the system mm. and so the you know real estate is is a real asset and it typically tracks with um with inflation so it's a good inflation hedge so i i don't i would be surprised if there's a pullback in real estate prices i think actually it's more likely to see a momentum in inflation and we see like a uh a, a, a new ambient higher um, inflation rate we're basically currently in negative real interest rates I mean, you borrow we're borrowing we bought an uh, 83 million dollar apartment building a couple days ago we borrow 1.75 percent what over one point seven five. it's floating wow. so it's a it's a so so and I know is that LIBOR minus one? <laughs> yeah. So C yeah, CPI C was five percent this month. Explain so the what real that interest means. rate. Oh, so uh, the consumer price index, basically how what the Fed's what the government says the rate of inflation is. I don't I don't really believe it, but it's uh, at least what the what the report. You think you don't believe so, it that it's it's probably higher? I think it's I think it's been higher for at least the mm -hmm. last ten years. I mean that basically 
there's just so many things. I mean, who who in their life has school, nannies, housing that's actually getting less expensive? Like, not nobody. So I, there, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of the sort of publicly uh, published numbers. But if you have a publicly published number of 5% inflation and you're borrowing at 1.75, right? Your negative, your interest rate's actually negative. Like the, right. the bank's literally paying you to borrow, in that case, $50 million. So so that's like a really good way to make money hmm. is, to, is to borrow at negative rates. And then and then have ten percent uh, rent growth. Yeah, an absolute no brainer. As you guys get to scale, I'm curious, what are the opportunities if your business was doing ten times uh, the volume and ten times the membership you had today? This is something I've been thinking about because over the last six years, the, the syndicate.com has grown ten x, and we've had to increase the number of offerings because they're filling up too quickly. And we've had to ask for additional allocations. I think we did six deals last month. Maybe this month we'll do eight deals. We're trying to hit consistently 10 deals per month in order to service those 8,000 accredited uh, investors. So just going around the horn here, Scott, if your business was 10 times bigger, could you be buying $4 billion in art? What would the world look like then? Um, and do, do you think that's the reality over the next 10 years that you'll be doing 10 times what you're doing now in terms of the footprint? Yeah, so to us that 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 seems possible, right? Like it's very surprising that that we are still the the only player that that provides investment products in the art market, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we we tend to think about our website community as version one to helping investors gain access to the asset class, but eventually, as you mentioned, fund products and other products sold to um, to different types of distribution uh, down the road to scale the business. So I think. You know, I would think of art, a lot of your listeners are, are very familiar with Bitcoin, right? So I would think of art as somewhat similar in that a lot of these artists have passed away. There's a finite supply of art left. And, you know, $4 billion out of $60 billion is, is maybe not hugely significant to the art market. I mean, it's very material, but to individual artist markets, um, it could be very, very meaningful. So you could see prices rise depending on individual artist markets that we back, Um as more capital comes in and you know it's i mean a lot of these paintings that are buying today for one or two million dollars like we can definitely see those artists being 10 million dollar plus artists in the future hmm. um so i think that's i think that's just the reality of it is is more and more capital comes into the asset class uh and uh, same question for you christopher if this goes 10x from here what would the do you think the business can go 10x from here and then what would that enable you to do what would what would the the world look like for you yeah, most definitely. I mean, you know, we're in a lot of different asset classes and collectively there, there's a tremendous amount of uh, market cap there to be, uh, you know, to be acquired. Um, I think the other piece that's interesting is, is the exit market, right? So, I, you know, we're not only acquirers of things, we're also exiters of things. So at a certain point that may start to balance itself out where things go back to private owners and, you know, uh, at the same rate almost as things are coming onto platform. Um, but, you know, in terms of, of us, we're, we're super focused on secondary market as well. And so, uh, you know, the, the model is, is, really, uh, is really predicated on seeing a substantial amount of growth in secondary market transactions, right? Like, you know, I think what Scott said before is right and probably about the same on our platform is we're seeing, you know, 20% of transaction volume happening in the secondary market. Mm. You know, if you look at, you know, NASDAQ or something, you know, different types of financial marketplaces, you know, the turnover uh, is, is you know, 100x in a year, right, mm. compared to the market cap of those markets. So I think that uh, there's a lot of room for growth, uh, 
in the in the transaction volume without necessarily uh, having to grow primary issuance at an exponential rate forever. Yeah, I mean, being able to buy bigger and bigger assets is a way to have more liquidity as well in the Correct. marketplace. So we went from a $1,000 or maybe a $2,000 minimum on the syndicate for accredited investors. Now we're making a 4k because we can only have 250 investors in an accredited offering up to 10 million. And we've started to hit you know, two, three, four million dollar. I think we've done a three point seven million dollar deal. We had six million in demand, but you know, we have a cap of two hundred fifty people, so we've had to raise the minimums, and that's another way to deploy more capital and have a bigger impact. Uh, and then I guess I'll end with you, Ben, on just it, how much growth is left in this business for you. Right. I mean, I like like what I think others were saying. It's still early. The idea that uh, a direct investor platform is how people will invest in real estate is how every other sector e-commerce you know insurance it's just the it's just the transformation of how new demographics will will uh, enter an industry so if i think about where we are now 20th largest real estate investor in terms of deployment a year you know i think we'll be the third biggest real estate investor you know within maybe three years three four years not not far off and um and it's and the market penetration right number of people who own stocks, 100 million people own stocks, uh, 16 million people own like a, a home that they rent. And so mm-hmm. we have 170,000 active investors, right? So to 10x that, it would still be a pretty small market penetration. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason we couldn't 10x the syndicate to 80,000. We have 8,000 now. I think probably AngelList probably has something in that regard. And I think Masterworks, you have 100,000 members or I don't know how many uh, are active. Yeah, hundred. I think 170,000 now. Oh, wow. Amazing. And then how many people on Rally Road? I don't know if you talk about that number, Chris. Maybe about 300,000. Amazing. And then how many of those are active? Uh, in any given month, you know, 30-40%. That's extraordinary. All right, listen, this has been amazing. Uh, great alternative asset roundtable. Uh, let us know if you liked it. You know how to get in touch with me, Jason at Calacanis.com. Highly recommend um, really getting educated on this class and spending a little time on masterworks.io. Uh, rally road is uh are you rallyrd.com rallyrd.com got it and then fundrise is fundrise.com correct correct fundrise.com there you go fundrise.com go check out the platforms if you want to join mine it's the syndicate.com you can sign up if you're not accredited for now but uh we don't do non-accredited yet uh but we uh we might in the future we're we're watching that accreditation laws might change as well and that's something i think everybody's monitoring yeah absolutely yeah could be a big impact in other countries <laughs> anybody can in, in london uh, or in the uk anybody can invest in these companies other countries australia very difficult canada i think makes it a little bit difficult um we really and nobody here is thinking about making a coin to power their platforms right this doesn't there's zero appealing about making a masterworks coin you know, we look. We when we started the business three years ago, that was that was the idea. Um, really? I don't. Yeah, I don't know if if like you, you guys have heard, but I still don't think there's a single reggae offering that's gotten through SEC with blockchain language. Huh. Um, I know the Republic was trying to do one. Hmm. I don't know six months ago, but to be honest, it, I think it's a net negative. Like sophisticated investors don't view it positively. Hmm. Um, Although, you know, the crypto community obviously does, but... Uh, well, I mean, it's a religion for them. And yeah. the reality for accredited investors, Scott, I think is what we're doing works. Why would we add this level of complication? Right. 
what's the what is the upside like i mean i know that people in the crypto community are going to say an immutable blockchain or whatever but <laughs> that doesn't really mean anything right yeah i agree like what does that mean to an art buyer who bought one percent of a warhol I agree. that it's on an immutable blockchain they don't care i think nobody can and i think i think it's too complicated too complicated nobody cares so there are your two reasons for the crypto community <laughs> you've made it way too complicated me and two, like provide some value christopher are you going to take a superman or lebron james card and like tokenize it People, I mean, I mean I, has a customer the, asked you for that? No, because what's the difference, right? If it's tokenized, if it if it's stored in a, in a database, you know, we built a digital securities business, right? So yeah. it's you know, it's still a regulated offering, and it and it's uh, it's still uh, got its provenance, and it's I think it's a fantastic. But technology. is it immutable? Is it immutable? It is absolutely immutable, right? But is it on public blockchain immutable <laughs> with nobody in charge? I mean, th that's the crazy stupidity of the crypto movement is that they think that their hammer fits every nail. It literally means nothing to be public and immutable for this asset class. Like, it's what is called the a it's called a title policy in a real estate? It's a public immutable asset, like that tells you ledger, like that you own this house. So yeah. it's like. A, What's you kind of have that already. <laughs> what's the problem you're solving with title insurance? That's actually insured, right? So hmm. you, you, your blockchain is not insured, right? If you, I don't know exactly how you insure it, but it's, it's a, what's the problem blockchain is trying to solve? That's the thing I'm trying to understand. I can't, I can't, I, I'm, the crypto people have to wrap my mind around it. Like what, what's the, is the problem that the dollar is just like as a fiat currency is over? But by the way, did Goldman release? Uh, so I, I have fr friends with the the CIO of ISG, and they, he, I thought he said they were releasing a pretty comprehensive report on uh, crypto Bitcoin this week. Uh, so be crypto in a hundred thousand, or crypto in three, or Bitcoin <laughs> or, three thousand. <laughs> yeah, flip a coin. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I think this is the reality. If somebody is listening to this in the crypto community and you're building the technology, not you're just like a crypto crazy person yelling and screaming on stage <laughs> in Miami, but if you're actually a developer in the crypto space, put aside Bitcoin and, and that sort of toxicity. But if you're just a crypto person, I think you have to look at what just happened on this roundtable. You have four people running the four largest best of breed for real I, real estate art collectibles and startups like we're talking about the mount rushmore here of alternative assets in this new space and not to be conceded here but we're, we're all putting nine figures to work plus and we can't understand as technologists as asset class managers we can't come up with a reason to use it we would love something innovative. We literally see nothing of value here. And I was open to it. I didn't lead the witnesses here. None of us, we all have the same exact reaction, which is what's the point? So if you're in crypto, there's your gauntlet. What is the effing point? We can trade on these platforms. We have databases. We have developers. Like We have titles. We have LLCs. Like, are you actually solving something like give yourself a real hard look in the mirror if you're a crypto person and you're making some tokenized fund and ask yourself if you're doing it for like the virtue signaling of being a crypto person or some religious reason or there is actually value to the consumer i mean i don't think any of our do, does somebody want to put their tokens for a warhol in a wallet scott and then risk losing it or would they rather you just have custodianship of it I mean, yeah, they would just rather us have custodianship of it. Um, you know, our, our average investor invests 
I think now anywhere between thirty and forty thousand dollars over their lifetime, depending on the cohort. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, they're not they're not you know they're kind of mid sized investors. Yeah, um, they don't want to deal with this mashugana. What about you, Chris? Anything? Is there anybody who's wants their Tesla Roadster number sixteen on a blockchain? No, but I mean, I, I think I'm interested in the NFT market. I think we're creating new types of collectibles, right? I think sure. there will, I think there will be as an asset class. I think it's fascinating. I think there are places where, um, you know, rarity and, uh, and cultural like significance will, will, will create longevity and value and create appreciative potential, right? Like, so I'm fascinated by I that. Do I think agree it's a place we want to, yeah. it's a place we want to be. And, you know, speaking of intangible assets, I think it's one that, that we'll look at really seriously. Mm. Um, but I think we also have to, you know, we, we've created a, a trust layer with our platform and we have to be, I think, really careful about, uh, you know, underwriting mm. standards and the, the quality of the assets we bring and, the, and, and the historical sort of, uh, you know, view of appreciation and where, you know, where value is going to, going to be stored in the long run. So, Scott, um, I'm sure people pitched you on taking your collection and then NFTing some of them and burning the p- original painting to make the NFT go up in value, like those crazy people did that time. But, um, in all seriousness, making an NFT, do you, would you have the right to make an NFT or a collection of NFTs based on an artwork you own? Yep, we actually don't have the right. So it's a it's a misunderstood thing about about copyright law. But you know, we can buy a twenty million dollar painting, and we don't actually own the copyright to it. So right. really, the the NFTs um, that are happening today are primarily being happen or primarily primarily being created by artists themselves, um, or the for- estate. So for somebody like Monet, yeah, could anybody create an NFT of a Picasso well, or Monet? You know, so I'll give you I'll give you an example. So the the Warhol Foundation recently um, agreed to you know quote unquote NFT some of their um, some of their 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 rights, I guess, uh, or their images of specific Warhols. And I know you know I know I know the former chairman of the Warhol Foundation, and they're very aggressive about how they think about copyrights, protecting their copyrights, etc. Mm-hmm. So they uh, they're doing these NFTs without transferring the copyright. Um, so you can buy the NFT, but you still don't get the copyright. You just get that copyright. digital asset for a million dollars. And the person who bought that Warhol, the same one, also doesn't have the copyright. So if another yep. medium comes out, um, they still have the right to it. If t-shirts are going to be made or a mural is going to be made or fine art prints, all that goes back to the original artist. And then the the great masters are in the public domain? Yeah, I can't remember the rule. I think it's after... Uh, I think it's after 75, 75 years, years plus say. the life of the uh, 75 years after the life of the author of the artist. Yeah, I don't know, it's I don't the Mickey Mouse. They call it the Mickey Mouse yeah. rule because they <laughs> Disney keeps getting it extended. It was originally like 50 <laughs> years and they're like, oh, <laughs> Mickey Mouse oh. is going to be in the public domain. We got to we got to protect the mouse. All right, listen, yeah. this has been great. We'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye bye.